The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Appreciate you joining us to study with us this morning. We're currently looking at the Upper Room Discourse that is found in chapters 13 through 17 of this fourth gospel. Now, what is unique about this discourse is you won't find it anywhere else. Okay, this is the only place you're going to find it in the fourth gospel. Another thing that's unique about it, it takes place on the last night of the Lord's life. So this is His gathering His disciples together the very last night of His life and just laying out this teaching for them. This is the night Judas is going to betray him. It's the night where later he'll go to the garden to pray and then be arrested, put through some mock trials. It's the night before he's to be crucified. Now, in the preceding verses of chapter 13, we've seen the Lord washing the disciples' feet, and by doing so, giving them a visual example of humble, sacrificial love. And now, in the new commandment, He's going to express directly what he intended to illustrate by the washing of the disciples' feet. Now, in our last study, we saw our Lord say, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Do you remember what the disciples' response was to that? They were shocked. They were like, "Who is it, is it me? I mean, they had no clue. Is it me, Lord? It's just kind of a humble response from these guys. We don't get it, you know, from the Gospel of John, but the other Gospels filled in the details for us. And they, it just tells us that after spending three years with Judas, they had no idea he was not one of them. And at that moment, Satan entered into Judas, the Bible says, and so Yeshua said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And verse 30 says, Judas leaves. So Satan entered into Judas because it's now time to activate the betrayal which would bring about the crucifixion at exactly the time when the Passover lambs were being slain because the Lord is the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in our study for this morning, we begin what scholars have called the farewell discourse. This section runs from John 13.31 through 17.26. So, this is pretty much the Upper Room Discourse, okay? But we've looked at 30 verses of the Upper Room Discourse, which is kind of an introduction-like. And now from verses 31 to 1726, this is the Farewell Discourse. And it's a unique section of the Gospel that's literally one long discourse, uninterrupted by narrative. It's the longest discourse section in the Gospel of John, containing 125 verses. Now, recent studies of these chapters have noted their formal similarities to other farewell discourses or testaments of famous men from the ancient world. This genre is known in the Hellenistic world, but it's even more common in Jewish literature. In literature form, this farewell discourse can be called Yeshua's testament or His last words. To his disciples. Now, the farewell speech is well established as a literary genre in the Tanakh and the Apocrypha books of the intertestamental period. We can see this literary form in Jacob's final speech and blessing in Genesis 48 and 49. Remember where he calls his sons together and he's kind of given his, his last discourse there, all right? We see it in Joshua's farewell to the nation found in Joshua 22-24, through 24, where Joshua says, you guys got to make a choice of who you're going to serve. Uh, we, me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. We see it in David's final speech in 1 Chronicles 28-29. through 29. And in one sense, really the whole book of Deuteronomy presents the farewell speeches of Moses. Now this farewell speech form became more common in the intertestamental period. And numerous works were written as the testaments or the last words of various biblical heroes. In the Apocrypha, we have the farewell speech of Tobit 
from his deathbed in Tobit 14, 3-11. And the entire testaments of the twelve patriarchs are farewell speeches patterned after Jacob's speech in Genesis. The book of Jubilees gives us farewell speeches of Noah, of Abraham, of Rebekah and Isaac. And Josephus includes a farewell address for Moses in his antiquities. Now, we also see some of this in the New Testament, because in the New Testament, Paul gives a farewell speech to the elders at Ephesus. Remember that? He calls the elders together on the beach, and he gives them this farewell speech in Acts chapter 20. And the pastoral epistles, especially 2 Timothy, might be thought of as a farewell speech. Paul's getting ready to die. So he's writing this, kind of his last words. So the farewell speech had a, a two-pronged purpose, basically. It addressed the needs of the original audience, encouraging them in the face of the forthcoming death of the speaker. The speaker's about to go. So he calls his followers and he gives them their last speech, just kind of encourage them to teach them, let them know how to get on without him. However, when the farewell speech was written, it took on a second purpose because it served to influence all future readers in the pattern or tradition of the speaker. So that's how we get in on this thing. You know, the disciples were there, we get in, we get to read this same thing. So Yeshua's last discourse is designed to comfort and to fortify His disciples on the eve of His crucifixion. It's going to be a rough day for them tomorrow. Their Lord is gone. They watch Him die. And they didn't have a clue about the resurrection. As much as He talked to them, they just didn't get it yet. But, like I said, this this speech is also designed for us because if we are followers of the Lord, if we are a disciple, then it's given to all disciples, then and future. Now, R. Brown has listed 13 features of major Old Testament and intertestamental farewell speeches which are shared in common with the last discourse in this Gospel. So this is a, a literary pattern. It's a genre. This farewell speech is not you know, something new. We see it all through the Scripture. We see it out of the Scripture. So it seems that Lazarus is laying this out in the typical style in chapters 13-17. through 17. Now let me ask you this. How is Yeshua's farewell speech different from all other farewell speeches? Yeah, in every other speech, they're giving a speech because they're dying. They're going to be gone. Well, it's a little different in this address, okay? He's coming back. He departed. They watched him die, but just a few days later, he rose from the grave. And so here's the cool thing about this farewell discourse. We not only have Yeshua's final words of instruction, we have his living presence and power to help us carry it out. Nobody else can say that. So let's start with our text for today. It says, when he had gone out, Yeshua said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, when he had gone out, that's referring to Judas. At the supper, Yeshua dipped that morsel, gave it to Judas. That moment, Satan entered him. Yeshua said to Judas, what you're doing, do quickly. And Judas left. So he leaves the upper room, and he goes out to arrange the betrayal of Christ. And again, the other disciples had no idea of his intention. They saw him go. They saw him give him the morsel. They didn't know what was going on. Lazarus probably had more of a clue because he was laying there talking to Yeshua. But Yeshua now knew that the events are in motion. Judas is gone. It won't be long before they come to arrest him. So he says, Yeshua said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The word glorified here comes from the Greek word doxadzo, which means brightness, radiance, splendor. And, you know, as you read this word doxadzo and get the context, remember what happened in verse 30? Remember the last words of verse 30? And it was night. Okay, so we go from the darkness of night to the brightness of the glory of God. See, the powers of darkness are now at work to bring about the crucifixion But the crucifixion is going to manifest the glory of God. Just, you know, as John plays with words here, as he always does. All right, Yeshua calls himself the Son of Man. That's his favorite title for himself. 
And the title always refers us back to the Son of Man in Daniel 7, which is a version of the Son of Man coming, a vision of the Son of Man coming in His glory before God. Now, outside of the New Testament, the title is associated with glory. We see that, you know, in Enoch. But within the synoptics, the title is frequently associated with suffering. And what's interesting is in the fourth gospel, the two are brought together. In this gospel, the title Son of Man unites the ideas of suffering and glory. Now those might not be things we would ever want to unite, but God unites them and hopefully by the end today we'll have an understanding of what's going on here. Well, What does Yeshua mean by glorify? Or I guess we could ask it this way, what is God's glory? You hear that a lot, right? The glory of God, you know, what does it mean? Could you explain it? Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that God's glory is intrinsic, okay? It belongs to His nature. We don't give Him glory. It is His by virtue of who He is. If neither men or angels ever existed, God would still be a God of glory. Now, look at this text in Genesis. And they heard the sound of Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim among the trees of the garden. What I want us to see here is that Adam and Eve lived in the presence of Yahweh. Now the Hebrews had a word for that presence. It was Shekinah. You've probably heard it pronounced Shekinah, whatever. Okay, tomato, tomato, all right. It means, Shekinah means to dwell or to reside. Shekinah is the transliteration of the Hebrew word that's not found in the Bible, but it's used in many of the Jewish writings to speak of the presence of God. So the term means that which dwells. And it is implied throughout the Bible whenever it refers to the nearness, either in a person, object, or glory. It's often used in combination with glory to speak of the presence of God. You've heard the Shekinah glory. Alright? Adam and Eve lived with the Shekinah, the visible presence of the glory of God. Alright? So God's intrinsic glory is simply the manifestation of Himself. And here's the thing I want you to understand. He most often displays His glory through His attributes. In other words, when we see the attributes of God, we're like, whoa, praise God. Give Him glory, you know. We worship when we see God's attributes. For example, let's look at Exodus 33.18. Moses says, please, show me your glory. Moses makes a request to God. I want to see your glory, Lord. Watch the response. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So, he's going to proclaim his name here. His name is the embodiment of his character which includes all his attributes. So what is God's glory? It's the embodiment of all his attributes. And God reduced them to a glorious light in order to show them to Moses. And in 33.20 it says, But He said, You cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by Me where you shall stand in the rock. While My glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now the word face here has the idea of the full glory of God. And he says, nobody can see my full glory and live, so what you're going to see is my afterglow, so to speak. I'm going to put my hand across you. You know, when I pass by, you'll see my afterglow. Verse uh, chapter 34, 5 and through 8 says, And Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, 
Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, Elohim, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And that, people, I think when we see the glory of God, that's, that's our response, worship. That's what the glory of God should cause us to do. Give, because worship comes from the word worth and ship. You're giving worth to God. That's what worship is. We're giving worth to you. You are worthy of our praise, our adoration, our honor. So Moses wants to see his glory, and he shows him his goodness, his mercy, his grace, because that's the glory of God. Seeing his attributes causes us to glorify him. Seeing his attributes, we see his glory. In chapter 33 of Exodus, God shows Moses his glory. Then in chapter 34, he proclaims his attributes, mercy, love, goodness, because these are his glory. So what does it mean to glorify God? It means to acknowledge His glory and to value it above all things, to make it known. When Yeshua turned the water into wine, it says that His glory was seen. You remember that? That was back in chapter 2. That was a few weeks ago, so you might have forgot. Uh, chapter 2.11 says, This, the first of His signs, Yeshua did in Canaan, in Galilee, and He manifests His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. See, these works performed by Yeshua, they're not just supernatural miracles. They are signs to unveil the glory and the power of God working through Yeshua. So Yeshua's glory is seen in the creation of wine. He creates this and displays His glory. But if I was to ask you, where did the ultimate display of the glory of God take place, where would you say? Transfiguration, what would you say? Okay, Ezekiel. The ultimate, when God just said, okay, remember, the glory of God is the display of His attributes. So I want you to see who I am. I'm going to give you a full vision of my glory. Where did it happen? That's part of it. The cross, the resurrection, the ascension. That's one unit there, people. That is where God put Himself on display. Now, it's characteristic of our Lazarus and of our Lord to use the term glorified with reference to the cross. And that's what he's doing here. When he had gone out, Yeshua said, now is the Son of Man glorified. His glory begins at the cross, but doesn't end there. He's glorified by the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the right hand of the Father. See, our Lord's suffering and His glory can't be separated. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. That's because he's talking about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, glorification into heaven, which would mean glory for the Father, right? Now is the Son of Man glorified. That's talking about the crucifixion. And that means God the Father is glorified, so he says God is glorified in Him. God is glorified by the Son's obedience who would in return Glorify the Son. He said, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify in Himself. He will do this by the resurrection and the ascension of the Son. And glorify Him at once. What does He mean by at once? How long is at once? Well, I can pretty much narrow it down for you. It's about 18 hours. Because 18 hours from this period, He's going to be on the cross. Okay? He's glorified at once. All right. Now, these terms here, uses it five times. The first three glorifieds are past tense in the Greek. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Past tense. You're like scratching, what? Not yet. See, the crucifixion and the resurrection are viewed both as completed, but yet still to come. The Son of Man is now glorified. This is... Speaking proleptically. You're familiar with that word, right? We've used that before. Proleptically. It means to describe an event 
that is not yet passed as though it was already completed. We see this a lot in Scripture. Speaking proleptically. He's speaking proleptically about the work that He's going to do on the cross by dying there. And in it, the repeated theme of glory. That uh, This is why this book, the second part of the Gospel of John, is called the Book of Glory. This is why. I mean, glory, glory, glory. This is what it's about. It's the Book of Glory. So how did Yeshua glorify the Father? Well, John 17, 4 says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He, he did what the Lord wanted him to do. He finished the work. So that's how he glorified the Father. Again, he's going to glorify it at once. Within 18 hours. All right, now, I w- here's what I want you to see here. Look at the green. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Okay? And God is glorified in Him. So who's, who's being glorified here? The Father and the Son, right? The glorification of the Son is synonymous with the glorification of the Father. Yeshua doesn't seek to be glorified apart from the Father but with the Father. So both Father and Son are glorified by the cross, resurrection, and ascension. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. So they're both glorified. Now hang on to this. A man wrote me last week, and he made a favorable comment in the email about the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses. So I responded and I said, the JWs are wrong on the deed of Christ, and that's damnable. Okay, that's my position. Alright, that's a big error. That's a serious error. All right, then he responded this. The Jehovah Witnesses, in my experience, come far from dishonoring Jesus. They give Him status just beneath God. Just beneath God. Well, that's like, oh, isn't that nice? I mean, He's higher than anything else because He's right right underneath God. I wrote back and said, the problem with that is He's not just beneath God. He is God. That's not beneath them. Now look at again at John 5.23. John 5 is very clear about this subject. Yeshua says that all may honor the Son. How? Just a little bit less than they honor the Father. Is that what He said? No. Just as you honor the Son, you honor the Father the same way. Just as you honor the Father, you honor Me. Failure to honor the Son reflects to, is a failure to honor the Father. Now listen, if you're familiar with Scripture and Yeshua comes along, as these Jews were, and He says, all that honor Me, you got to honor Me just as you honor the Father. They're like scratching their heads saying, uh, wait a minute, what about uh, Isaiah 42? Where God says, I am Yahweh. That is My name. My glory I give to no other. Nor My praise to carved idols. So it's saying, Yahweh's not going to share His honor with another. So for Him to share His honor with the Son must mean the Son and the Father of the same essence. Let me ask you, what man, what created being could say that we should honor Him just as we honor God? Yeshua, people, is claiming to be Yahweh. Why would he make that claim? Because he is. He is Yahweh. What glorifies one glorifies the other because they are one. I have so many people write me and argue, want to argue with me about this point. They just, you know, no, he, Jesus is not God. I'm like, yeah, you're wrong, okay? And I, I continually run to John 8, 24. Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. I think that's serious. Yeshua is Yahweh manifest in the flesh. Okay? So when we glorify one, we glorify the other. And this means that someone who doesn't glorify one, for example, the Jews, they don't honor the Father. Everybody says, yeah, but the, oh, the Jews love God. Not according to my Bible. And then you've got people like John Hagee out there with all the people that listen to Him and follow Him, saying the Jews don't need the Gospel. 
They got their own gospel. They got their own way to get to God. Does he read the Bible? All right, let's get back to our text before I go off on this, all right? All right, this glory is going to happen at once, all right? And the cross displayed the glory, as I've said, like no other event. Remember that I said God's glory is the manifestation of His attributes? Well, when we see God's attributes, we worship, we glorify Him. Well, many of His attributes were displayed at the cross. The cross is the greatest symbol and demonstration of the glory and the wonder of God. At the cross, God displayed His holiness and His justice. They're revealed like never before. See, the cross exposed how seriously God hates sin. Isaiah said, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. See, He didn't have any transgressions. You say, well, why would He have to suffer? Why would He have to die? He did it for us. It's substitutionary. He was crushed for our iniquities. Not His own. He had any. He died for us. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Isaiah goes on to say, Yahweh laid on Him, referring to Christ, the iniquity of us all. And here's what we have to understand, people. God is just. God is holy. So when God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Guess what happens? The soul that sins, it dies. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, so they have to be punished. God can't say, I changed my mind, I'm just going to forgive some of you and bring you on in. Punishment has to be made. So he says, I will punish my son for you as your representative. He'll die instead of you. The sentence of the law would be fully executed on my son. For you. God didn't just say, I'm going to forget about my justice for a minute because I'm a God of love, as everybody knows. So I'll override all these other attributes and I'll just let you in. No! Payment was paid. And this is, this is why I say when you get to heaven, you deserve to be there. Tell people freak out over that. What? How can? No. Yes, you do, because the penalty was paid in full in Christ, and I am in Christ. I'm as righteous as Him. Everything Yeshua is and has, I am and have because I'm in Him. That's a beautiful thing, people. And when you get to understand it, it is so freeing, so liberating. All right. So at the cross, we not only see His holiness and His justice. We also see His faithfulness. I love that attribute, don't you? Great is His faithfulness. Well, Yahweh had promised a Savior right after man blew it in the garden, right? He promised the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. And then as you're reading through Genesis, you get to chapter 22, and He promised a substitute who would take the place of a sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket. And and that's such a beautiful text. And he goes, oh, we got the fire, we got the wood. Uh, Where's the sacrifice? What did he say? God will provide Himself a sacrifice. You know, that's profound. They didn't get that back then, but we, knowing the New Testament, read back, God's going to provide Himself. Yes, He is. And what's, what did He find? A ram caught in a thicket with a crown of thorns around its head. People, the Bible is exciting. If you just spend some time in it, it's really exciting. Alright? He promised a sacrifice in Isaiah 53, and He's faithful. He did exactly what He said He would do. So not only do we see His holiness, not only do we see His justice, not only do we see His faithfulness at the cross, we also see His love. See, the Bible says, God so loved the world that what? He gave. It doesn't say that He felt warm, He felt tingly, He got all excited, He got goosebumps. He loved 
and he gave. Love is a verb. It's an action. You have to do something. Lazarus put it this way in his letter. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If someone asked you, could you describe the word propitiation? Okay, here's what propitiation means. It's the removal of wrath. God's angry. God's wrath is against us, right, because we've sinned. How does He remove the wrath? By the offering of a sacrifice. So the sacrifice is offered. The wrath is... God poured out His wrath on Yeshua, so guess what? We don't have to have it poured out on us. The removal of wrath. He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So not only do we see His justice and His holiness, and His faithfulness, and His love at the cross, we see His grace, we see His mercy displayed there. His compassion is displayed there. His wisdom is displayed there. People, God is on display at the cross. So Yeshua says, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Now, Let me say a word here just for those of you that really dig. There's some question about the authenticity of this first part of this verse, if God is glorified in Him. And you can see that it's kind of redundant, but there's questions because a lot of manuscripts don't have this. Now I'm sure that you're aware that we have no original writings of the New Testament. All we have is copies. And you know how they made copies. They didn't put it in the Xerox and push a button, okay? They had to handwrite them. And so if you got humans involved in the process, guess what? You know, some guy misses something, some guy adds something, you know, in the thing, so it can be off, you know? All we have are copies of the New Testament. But what we do have in the New Testament textual tradition is more copies of the New Testament than of any other ancient writings there is. We got a lot of copies, all right? And so we they look at these copies and where they differ, textual criticism gets involved. All right? They sit down, they try to figure out, you know, okay, what human error would have caused this? What frailty, what, you know, slip of the eyes, whatever caused this? And they try to compensate, they try to figure out what should have been in there. Now it's likely, I think, that the text we have, if God be glorified in him, is genuine. But I just want you to be aware that some manuscripts don't have it. It really doesn't change anything to the text, but some manuscripts leave it out, so you might be reading a different translation, and it's not in there. Okay, no extra charge for that. All right, let's go on. Verse 33 says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. All right, he's talked about glorifying himself, glorifying the Father. Then he says, Little children, a little while I'm with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. Little children. This is from the word technion, which means a born one. It's a diminutive in the kind of thing that you would speak to a little child. Little born ones. And so Yeshua is really using tender terms here because he has a lot of affection for these people that he's there with, these disciples that are there with him. Strong affection. Technion occurs eight times in the New Testament and it's only used by Lazarus. It's once here, and it's used seven times in his first epistle. He's the only one who uses it. Now, this is something I found in the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible that I thought was interesting. He's talking about technion, but he says, Disciples sometimes called their teachers father, and sages would refer to their disciples as children. But here's what I want you to get. Look what he says. Although some could be older, most mature disciples were in their teens. I thought, yeah, I say that a lot. Let me back it up with something. Okay. <laughs> so the NIV cultural background study you know, puts that out there that, listen, they're just teenagers, these guys. Okay? It's hard to think of them that way because every picture we see, they're old men, you know, they're old aged saints. Well, not at the time they're with Yeshua, they're not. So these are a bunch of young teenagers. So he said, little children, affection, term of affection. Yet a little while I'm with you. And again, this little while is about 18 hours. I don't have much more time with you, all right? And then he said, just as I said to the Jews, 
Let me ask you, who is Yeshua talking to here? Not a trick question. Upper room discourse. He's talking to his disciples. What nationality are they? Are they Jews? So he says, just as I said to the Jews, well, wait a minute, they're Jews. What is he talking about? Okay, he's using the term Jew here like he does throughout most of this letter to refer to his opponents, primary the Jewish leaders, all right? Remember I told the Jews this before. I'm going to say it to you now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now this same statement puzzled the Jews to whom Yeshua said it in 733 and 821, and now it puzzles the disciples. Think about how these disciples must have felt hearing this. Okay, guys, I'm leaving you. You can't come where I'm going. You can't come. I mean, they had given up their lives, basically. Their fishing, whatever they did, their jobs. They left their families behind to follow Yeshua, the rabbi. And now Yeshua says, I'm going away and I'm going to leave you guys. And that must have been really hard. I mean, you know separation. You get close to somebody, you love somebody, they move out of town or they leave or they die. That's a painful thing. And they're like, where are you going? You know, we got all our eggs in one basket here. You can't leave. Later that same evening, he says to them, I think just to help comfort them, in 1428, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away. I'll come to you. In other words, I'm coming back, guys, so don't, don't get too upset, all right? He's just comforting them about this idea. So, he tells them, I'm going away. Which, again, must have been very hard for them. And then he says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Okay, I'm leaving you. Here, let me tell you, give me some, let me give you some marching orders. Here's what I want you guys to do. Now, let me ask you something. How is loving one another a new commandment? Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 talk about Loving. Uh, Leviticus 19.8 both say that the Israelites were to love one another. I mean, you could sum up the whole Old Covenant because Yeshua did in two commands, right? How's it work? They said, here's this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. That's it. The whole, I mean, that's it. That's not hard, right? Just love God with everything in you and love your neighbor as yourself. Simple, right? then what's so different about the Lord's commandment here that He calls it new? Well, what did the Old Covenant say? Love your neighbor as yourself. How does Yeshua change it? He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. (laughs) That kind of steps the whole thing up, you know, because He's talking about His love, and His love drives Him to Calvary to sacrificial death on their behalf. And they had seen His love during His entire earthly ministry. Most recently in the washing of their feet, took the position of a servant. He washes their feet. But they're only going to understand the depth of this after the cross. I want you to love one another the way I loved you to the point of death. I give you everything I have. Nowhere else in the New Testament does the term new commandment occur Outside of Lazarus' writings. He uses this in his first and second letter. Again, as yourself. That's Okay, see, that's the Old Testament standard. Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Well, the Lord really steps it up. Not like you love yourself. Love your neighbor like I love you. Alright? So again, he's the only one that uses this technion, and he's the only one that uses the new commandment. We go to... The 1 John 2, 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, I'm writing no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Right? They had the commandment from the beginning. Love one another. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment. Wait a minute, John. You're getting me confused here, all right? That I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. So Lazarus is talking about this new commandment in his letters. He mentions it three times. But here's what I find interesting about the new commandment in John's letters. Nowhere in any of the letters, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, does Lazarus refer directly to the love of Yeshua for his disciples. He doesn't say, you guys need to love one another the way Yeshua loved you. 
What's different in the letters is he said, you ought to love each other because God loved us. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And here's what I hope that we can see in this by now. This Yeshua who gave us the new commandment and told us to love each other the way He loved us, this Yeshua is God incarnate. Every act of Yeshua the Son is an act of God the Father. So when Lazarus writes that God loved us, he is saying, Yeshua loved us. He is God. And this is just a, this is something that Lazarus wants everybody to know. All through his gospel, all through the letters, he's letting them know, okay, if God loved us, well, if we go back in the context, it's, talk, it's Yeshua who's talking. No, he says, if God loves us, we ought to love one another. And Yeshua set the example for us. He is God. All right. Then he says, let me ask you, what do you see here that Yeshua is saying to his disciples? What's he telling them? Well, first of all, I want you to see he's not giving them a suggestion. A new suggestion I give to you. That's not what it says. You know, some people freak out over commandments. Oh, we're in the new covenant. We don't have any commandments. Well, who's he talking to here? His disciples? And he says, I got a new commandment for you. You can't live out the Christian life without a commitment to loving other people. I got a commandment for you guys. Love one another the way I loved you. You know, some Christians place a big emphasis on prophecy. Some place a big emphasis on spiritual gifts. Some on social issues. But the core curriculum for the Christian life is to love one another. This is the bottom line, people. It doesn't matter how much you know or how much you do If you don't pass this test, Paul put it this way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that sounds pretty good to me, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now the Greek text at the end of verse 2 does not say that he is nobody. That would be strong. The Greek text says he is nothing. A zero. So write five zeros down and add them up and what do you get? Quickly, any of you math whizzes. (laughs) Zero. Okay? Zero. And here's what Paul is saying. Life minus love is nothing. It's nothing. The loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, gains nothing. If we're going to be faithful Christians, we can't pick and choose who we're going to love. And we can't let love become a secondary issue. Love is more than just an option. It's entry-level requirement for discipleship. Yeshua said, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Just let that sink in. It's the most significant attribute that Christians can offer the world. We need to love one another. Now, I'm not quoting a tweed-wearing, pipe-smoking liberal theologian. This is Yeshua saying this, okay? He said that they'll know we're His disciples by our love. To not be a loving person is not a small character flaw. It's to break the greatest commandment. It's to not love God. So we must understand that love is a requirement. Now look at the next verse. He says, by this, the love we just talked about, you loving one another, by this, people will know that you're my disciple if you have love one for another. Now, disciples were expected to imitate their teacher. Often if you, you saw a rabbi and you admired this rabbi, he's a godly man, I want to I follow him, you would approach that rabbi and you said, Rabbi, do you think I can be like you? And if he thought you had the character, you could be like him, then he would take you in as a disciple. And he would train you. Because they imitated their teachers. And as long as Yeshua was in the world, they could tell who his disciples were. 
Well, look, they're following them around everywhere they go. It wasn't just the 12. There was a bunch of people following them around. Luke makes that clear. There's a bunch of women following them around everywhere he went. But Yeshua tells us that following his physical presence is not going to be the mark of his discipleship anymore. I'm leaving. So I'm going to give you a new mark, a new indication that you belong to me. A new commandment. Here it is. You love one another as I have loved you. That's how people will know that you are my disciple. Now since his departure, his disciples from now on are known by their love for one another. And I could bring a bunch of quotes from the early fathers who, you know, or early people who would say, it's amazing how they love one another. I mean, they literally live this out. Now, look closely at this verse. Is it love that identifies us as Christians? Well, that's not what it says. It says that love identifies us as disciples. So, what would be the identifying mark of a Christian? Faith. Okay? Faith. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. So, believing gives you eternal life. You hear the word, you believe it, you become a Christian. Now, we've gone over this before, but one of the most important and yet misunderstood distinctions in the Bible is the distinction between a Christian and a disciple. See, many see them as just synonymous. Like the Lord's just talking about the same thing, He just uses different words, picks one out whenever He feels like it. I think the Bible makes a distinction between a Christian and a disciple. And we deal, dealt with this in depth back in John chapter 8, verse 32. But the Scriptures make it clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. But the Scriptures also teach that discipleship is costly. Salvation is our birth into the Christian life. Discipleship is our education and maturity in the Christian life. All Christians are called to be disciples. Not many are. Yeshua taught His disciples, all His disciples, that we're to love one another just as He loves us. So I think, see, Judas was a disciple. But he wasn't a believer. And that doesn't work. Okay, You could try to follow the Lord, but if you don't know Him, you're never going to work out following Him, and it didn't last too long. So you can try to follow Christ even though you don't know Him, and many people do that. You can know Him and not follow Him, and a lot of Christians do that. We're saved by grace through faith. We trust Him, and we understand who He is. We become part of His family. Now, as His family, as His children, we're to follow Him so the world can see. Now, on these verses, talking about discipleship and all this stuff, John MacArthur, and I don't like to pick on John, but I've learned so much from him. The reason I teach how I do is I got it from John. Okay, the verse by verse, I got that from him. I cut my teeth biblically on listening to everything John MacArthur had. So, I disagree with a lot of things he says now, okay? Um, but, and this is one of the big areas. John writes this on these verses. Examine yourselves. How do I know I'm a genuine believer? That's a good question, right? And we should have a good answer for it. How do I know I'm a believer? How do I know I'm really converted? And again, you've got to get past the externals. It's not about activities that you might do. It's about love. What's wrong with that statement? Huh? Okay. He says it's not about activities. It's about love. Love is a verb. Love is something you do. Okay? So that is an activity. You can't just stand there in love. You have to do something. God so loved the world that He gave action. Okay? So He says it's not about activities. It's about love. And where your love goes, where your love is directed, where your love is focused, and how consistent and faithful is your love. (laughs) So being a Christian is about consistent in faithfulness, we're in trouble. Well, John goes on to say, if you ask the question, how can you tell when someone's a believer? And the first answer is, because that believer is consumed with the loving, the glory of his Lord. His love is all in the direction of the Redeemer, 
the Savior, the Lord, whatever will bring Him glory. So this is how you tell a Christian. They are consumed with the loving, the glory of the Lord. Yeah, well, I was going to say, how many Christians do you know now? They're consumed with that. It's all about that. It's not about them and doing all the little things they want to do. It's about the glory of the Lord. John goes on to say, how do you know? See, people, stuff like this makes Christians question their faith. Well, man, I'm just not, I'm not doing all, I'm not sold out totally. I'm not devoting, I must not be a Christian. And I think MacArthur damages the church. you got believers thinking, I'm no longer a believer. He goes on to say, how do you know when someone is a true Christian? You, you see, he's just beating this <laughs> dead horse to death. Yeah. Well, he says their love focus is on the glory of their Lord, on the well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ, and it evidences itself in an undying, enduring, loving loyalty to Christ. If John is right, and I don't think he is, there aren't many true Christians out there, okay? I mean, they're just that they're consumed with the well-being of their brothers and sisters. And it's evidence in an undying, enduring, loving loyalty to Christ. Listen, people, it's not what we do that makes us Christians. But it is what we do that makes us disciples. Because discipleship is following Christ. Now, I don't think there should be too much argument to the fact that we are commanded as believers to love one another. We know we're supposed to love, but do we really know what that means? See, our culture uses the word love to mean just about anything except what the Bible says it means. You know, we love French fries, we love my dog, I love God. Well, that all means the same thing to you. So Christians are easily misled into thinking love is primarily a feeling. That's how we've, you know, you fall in love, like it's a hole or something. And all of a sudden you're there and you don't know how to get out of it, all right? You know, they, they just base it on some kind of feeling. You know, we're in or out. You have this different feeling. I'm in love. I, I'm not, I don't love them anymore. What do you mean you don't love? I, I just, feeling's gone. Where is love talked about as being a feeling? See, the biblical word for love is agape. Agape is used by the New Testament writers to designate a volitional, as opposed to emotional, a self-sacrificial love. Agape love is a response to someone who is unworthy to love. The concept of love was derived from the cross. God loved, God gave. He gave His Son for it. That was a response to unworthy people, to sinners, to those who were His enemies. That's agape. It's a love that proceeds from the nature of the lover rather than the worth of the person who is loved. It's a love that gives. It's a love that seeks the best of the object love. And agape is a commitment of the will to cherish, uphold another person. It's the only word ever used to describe God's love. It's a decision you make. It's a commitment you launch upon to treat another person with concern, with care, with thoughtfulness for his or her interest. That's what love is. And listen, you can't read your Bible without seeing over and over the commandment to love one another. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now the Greek word that Peter used here, earnestly, is ektenos. This is the Greek word, it means intently. It means without ceasing. We are to intently love one another. Look at the writer of Hebrews told believers. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. We're not only to love, we're to stir up other people to love. Now, the word consider here, kata neo, comes from kata, which means down, and noeo means to exercise the mind. It has the idea of thoroughly and carefully noticing someone or something. A good English equivalent would be to contemplate. So, do you thoroughly and carefully contemplate others? Let's contemplate others. How can we help them? How can we stir them up to love and good works? See, this exhortation to consider is is not given to the church leaders. It's given to all believers. We're all to consider one another. We're all to look to the needs, the problems, the struggles, the temptations of each other. 
You know, this spirit of rugged individualism that's so prevalent in America is incompatible with the church. American believers think they've discharged their responsibilities to love the Lord because they are personally living a holy life. If I'm living a holy life, I'm good and don't worry about anything around me. But we're not only to look out for our own lives, we're to consider others. Christianity is others-oriented. But most of us care only about meeting our own needs. We ignore many instructions in the Bible about our responsibility to others. Let me try to make this even stronger. (laughs) Do you realize that individually, you and I are personally responsible for the physical and spiritual welfare of each other? We're responsible for each other. Do you understand that? Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So that's what the Lord did. He served. He washed their feet. He did the most humble, needed task. See, the kingdom of God is not designed for believers to exist in isolation from one another. We are interdependent. This is hard for Americans to understand because we all go off in our little corner have our little private devotions. The Hebrews didn't get that because they always work together. They work together. We need each other, people. If we're truly going to be what God has called us to be, we need each other. We all have blind spots. We all have places where we're just totally messed up and we think we're good until someone comes along and says, uh, that's not a good thing right there. And you're like, I never thought about that. You know, there's been many times when I'm studying a passage and I come up and I'm like, oh man, this means this. And I share it with somebody and they go, well, what about this verse? And I'm like, just blew it all to pieces. You know, I'm totally going, well, that, and that's why we need each other. It's not about going in the closet with your Bible. It's about interacting because it's, you know, if you're going to be a monk and go somewhere and just, you know, chant, you don't have to worry about loving one another. Okay? That's where Christianity's tough. Okay? That's where it's tough. You ever heard that little poem, uh, to, dwell below, oh, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that's quite a different story. <laughs> it's tough, you know, interacting with one another. But each of us has unique abilities, insights that are invaluable to ministering to the body of Christ. Christianity is to be lived out in community. God has created us to be dependent both on Him and on one another. Just look up all the one another verses in the New Testament. Now, let me make it clear. We've got to understand that it is only by God's transforming grace that believers and only believers can love one another as Yeshua loved them. This is not for non-believers. He's talking to His disciples. We can only love like this as believers when we walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God Trusting His power, relying on His grace, loving one another as Christ loved us, listen to me, is supernatural. And if you think it's natural, you have a way too high opinion of yourself. Okay? It can only be done as the Spirit of God works through us. But as we see, I'm not loving that person. We need to look to God. God, I need Your grace. They're they're hard to love. I need some help here, Lord. You need to minister to me. It's supernatural. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a product that the Spirit working through our life develops. So when you see believers truly loving one another, it's a spiritual thing. All right, let's move on in our text. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Yeshua answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. You follow me afterwards. All right. The Lord said, I'm going away. You guys can't come. And then he says, so I'm going to give you a new commandment. Here's how you live. And it's like Peter missed all that. What? He's focusing on, you're leaving? That's all he's thinking about. It's like no more words came out of the Lord's mouth after that. He's so shocked, he just goes, Lord, where are you going? Seems to ignore the commandment about love. Yeshua tells him, well, you can follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Look at this. The Lord says, you will follow afterwards, Peter. I'm your your rabbi. I'm your Lord. I'm your teacher. And Peter goes, now. 
Not later. Man, how many of us fall into this category? The Lord says later, and you say, what's wrong with right now? I want it, I want it now. And that's Peter. Wait a minute, Lord, this is ridiculous. He, Peter never seems to want it the Lord's way. He's got his own plan, his own agenda. That He thinks he's smarter than the Lord, obviously. Now, all four of the Gospels report this protest by Peter and his willingness to die. Tragically, the boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays a gross ignorance of himself. Okay, When I read this, I think of what Paul wrote, Let him who thinks he stands, I'll never deny you, take heed lest he fall. He's trusting him. Lord, I'm way too far beyond that. I'm a good, I love you. I'll, I'll die for you. Let's go. Let's do it right now. He underestimates his own weakness. Peter spoke of laying down his life for Yeshua. Here's the ironic part. Yeshua was getting ready to lay down his life for Peter. All right? But Peter didn't, he didn't get all that right then. Verse 38, Yeshua answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow. The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, the NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible says this, roosters crow often. I'm like, boy, thanks for that insight. I, I, got, one, I got one right down the street from me. They crow whenever they want, okay? But ancient sources mention most often the crowing at dawn. And that's how we think of it. You know, the sun starts to come up and the rooster's letting you know it's time to get up. Well, Yeshua thus probably warns Peter here that before the night's over, Peter, that's what he's saying. Before the night's over, you're going to deny me. Three times. Now, the prophecy of Peter's denial, again, is recorded in all four Gospels. But the, there's an encouraging thing in Luke 22. All right? He kind of not only talks about the denial, but gives Peter some hope. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, he says, you know, Peter, you always run in your mouth. Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, in other words, ultimately your faith will not fail. And then he says this, when you have turned again, in other words, you're going to fall, Peter, but when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. So that's kind of, oh, oh okay, I'm going to turn again. And when I do, I want you to strengthen your brothers. And listen, Peter did just that. He denied his Lord. He fell. But he repented of that. And after Pentecost, he became a rock for the Lord. He preached that great Pentecostal sermon and a lot of sermons after that in Jerusalem. What was the difference? There's the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He's empowered now. He's not running on his own energy anymore. He's not you know, trusting in himself. He's got the Spirit of God and he became a rock for the Lord. And you know that Peter did go to the cross and die for the Lord? Tradition tells us that Peter died as a martyr in 67 A.D., but he didn't die like the Lord did crucify. He requested, you need to crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified as my Lord was. So Peter came a long way, all right? He blew it. And that's encouraging too because any of us ever blown it? <laughs> the, Lord didn't, you know, the Lord didn't say, Peter, you're going to deny me and I'm done with you. I'm sick of you. Know, you're the leader of this group. You're the oldest and you just don't seem to get it. I'm tired. I'm done. No, he says, Peter, you're going to blow it. But when you get back, when you repent, when you strength, strengthen your brothers, get back in there and help out. Because you've got experience. You've fallen. So Peter was, again, according to tradition, crucified upside down for the Lord. So, believers, let's close this morning with this. If you were to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, being honest, how, would, how well you obey the biblical command to love others, how would you stack up? Okay, here's your scale, 1 to 10. One's, of course, you know the lowest. You're not really loving anybody too much. And ten, you're just you're you're right there with Yeshua. Okay, where do you come in at? Maybe a lot of us want to put ourselves here. Eight, really, really? Are you going to be honest? Because if you're honest, let's get down the scale. Okay, there you go. That's maybe more like it of how we're really loving others. Now listen, the standard now is change. Love one another. As I have loved you. Was there any failing at all in the Lord's love for us? Any missteps? Anything wrong? Anything He didn't understand, didn't do right? No. 
And it was to the point of giving everything to, to the cross. The cross is in view here. Love one another as I've loved you. I'm loving you to the end. I'm loving you. And that's what he said at the beginning of this chapter. Remember? He loved them to the end. The end of his life. The end. He put everything into it. And here's the thing, believer. If you've trusted Christ, you are a believer. But are you a disciple? And the thing that sets apart disciples is their love. It's not their knowledge. It's not anything that the world might brag, or even in the church we brag on all. It's not how many people you have in church. It's not anything but your love for one another. That's the mark of discipleship. So are you a follower of Yeshua? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. It can really bite, Lord. It can really cut. And some of these texts are difficult to look at. As the Lord gives His last words to His followers, He realizes the disciples are going to be distinguished not by following Him around the city any longer, but by their love for one another. The world's going to know. And Lord, I believe the world still identifies those who love one another as Your disciples. Thank You, Father, for Your grace. Lord, I pray we would learn the importance of this, the importance of love, We'd put aside some of our self-will, some of our selfishness, and we'd really truly love one another, living dependently upon You and the Spirit to pull it about. Help us to understand, Lord, this is supernatural stuff. But that's okay, because we have a supernatural enablement from the Spirit. Thank You, Father, for Your grace. Amen.